0: Uh, you know one of my neighbors uh has a tree, and uh this particular tree uh sends out roots that are not very deep in the ground of course you know more than just a few inches, but they also come to the surface quite um, readily as well and don't miss here i 'm not this is not a complaint against a neighbor right um, but uh as you look at this tree, what starts to happen is that on one Section of our yard, a bunch of little shoots start to come up in our yard. And so there was a point when I thought, hey, free trees. (laughs) And uh, Sherilyn and I kind of let a few of these things grow for a little bit. We didn't know much about the tree. I know that would be a surprise to a lot of you. Uh, We didn't know very much about this tree or this kind of tree. And we just did some research and we decided, yeah, okay, we'll probably hold off on inviting these guys in. But we had let a couple of shoots. Uh, you know, grow about, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 inches, something like that. And so, you know, no harm, no foul. I've got a lawnmower that can handle it. And so uh, that was the plan. Now, these little shoots have been coming and popping up a little bit. You know, they're just, uh, you know, little baby guys, you know, for quite some time. We just always mow over them. No problem, right? Well, what 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 we don't often think about is the fact that while we're mowing down what's coming up above the surface, uh, coming up through the grass, What's happening underneath the soil is that these roots are still getting a little bit thicker and a little bit stronger, especially in the areas where we decided to let a couple of them grow a little bit taller. Again, only a foot or so, but nonetheless, that's what happens uh, with trees and things like that. And so uh, I went out there one day and and, uh, some of them early on, I could just go out and just kind of you know, kind of pluck off and pinch it with my nail and get through it and pluck it off and just keep mowing over them. Uh, But there were a couple that it wasn't quite that easy. So I went out there and I just bare hands and made a pair of gloves, you know, and uh, tried to, I thought, oh, if I just move this thing back and forth a whole bunch, it'll just snap off. Well, no, it didn't. Well, no big deal. I went in and I got the gardening shears, came back out and No problem. I should just be able to cut these off. And I was able to get most of it off, you know, the top of it, but the, but the bottom few inches was a little thicker and I wasn't quite able to get it. So I, I, I got out the spade and I just started digging a hole in the ground, not a huge hole, just enough to get below the surface some. I know some of you are like, I cannot believe this guy. (laughs) Well, honestly, I can't either. Okay. So let's just say that we are agreed. Uh, but I start to dig a little bit of a hole, and I kind of pull some roots out of the ground enough, and then I've got the larger, uh, uh, what would you call those things, uh, shears, what? Loppers. The loppers, that's the technical scientific name, the loppers, and so I get the loppers out, and then it's no problem. Now, I've got a hole in the ground now, and it's, again, not a huge hole, you know, uh, a few inches in diameter, and, and uh, maybe four inches down in the ground, and, and six or eight inches wide, so that I can get down deep enough. But even with these loppers, I had to give it a little bit of extra juice in uh, clipping them off. It wasn't that hard, but I was able to do that, and and no problem. I I, uh, dug a little deeper. I pushed those roots further down in there, and I covered it all up, and then I just had to let the grass regrow over the spot where I had just ruined that yard. You know, if I was going to really, truly deal with that entire root system, right? If I was one of these guys that was going to go overkill and do the job 100% right all the way, Well, I'm sure there's some chemical out there, but I, you know, you might have to dig up more of the yard and, and deal with this root altogether. Maybe put a, maybe put a barrier in place between my yard and his yard, you know, an invisible, uh, not invisible, but buried, you know, like a a little wall under the ground so his roots couldn't keep growing into our yard. Well, who's going to do that? I'm sure not going to do that. I'm sure not going to do that. But sin is like that root system. And oftentimes what happens is as one little shoot grows up, well, we just deal with that shoot. No problem. And then another shoot grows up, and well, we just deal with that shoot. And then another shoot grows up, and we just deal with that behavior. And then another shoot grows up, and we just were like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to mow over them all. So, what becomes visible to ourselves and others seems to be dealt with. But what continues to happen is the root system below the surface gets stronger and stronger, even. If it's not continually visible, next summer, next spring, guess what I'm going to have to do? Mow over these little things. Just keep doing it, which is no problem because I just mow my yard and it takes care of it. It's easy because we just go to church and it seems to take care of it. We figure out how we can, we behave a little bit better, how we can keep that complaining under the surface just a little bit. You know what, I I can't complain to those people because they're not going to put up with it. They're going to lovingly call me on it like, like they're supposed to. I can't continue to be frivolous with my money because somebody who loves me in the Lord might actually challenge me one day on, whether I'm investing in eternity or if I'm investing in temporal things. I can't continually just nicely avoid the people that I don't want to talk to at church or in my neighborhood or in the grocery store because somebody that loves me, hopefully, will come alongside of me and say, you know, you, you, you can't keep doing that. You can only lop off what's above the surface for so long before that root is strong enough that it doesn't matter what you try to do. You're you're not going to simply be able to break it off or or cut it off. You're going to have to get out something bigger. It's going to be harder to deal with down the road. One of the things I tell people I have serious conversations with at times who come for help, and I just say something like, you know, uh, it's taken some time, six months, a year, 20 years, to get to this place you're in right now. And so I want to help dispel the myth that in three weeks or six weeks, it's just going to be totally healed. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. And that's what sin is like in our lives. And, and, and John is trying to draw out for us repeatedly through this passage That we need to deal with our sin by dealing with the root system. If you remember remember where we left off last week in 1 John 3, 3, the last verse of what we look at, John shares that those who are enthralled with the otherworldly, that's actually verse 1, or divine love of the Father, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Those who are enthralled by this kind of love, which is a different kind than we know, are those who are children of God, those who set their hope, their confident expectation on our eternal heavenly kingdom reality, which leads to, which necessarily, hear me, child of God, and hear me. If you think you're a child of God or you tell people you're a child of God, but this is not your love, expectation, or pattern. We set our hope on the eternal heavenly kingdom reality, which leads to a life of of progressively a little bit at a time with all of our earthly effort and all of God's enabling strength toward us. Purifying ourselves even as He is pure. That's first John three, three. Do you see the strength of that statement? Everyone who have this has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so we can learn a lot from John that true believers will continue purifying themselves in Christ as we, as they, as you look for or hope for Jesus' return with a humble, confident assurance. We're not to be arrogant Christians. We're to be humble. But humility is, as some have said, strength under control. You have a confidence, an assurance that you will be with Jesus. One day. Friends. The American church. Desperately. Needs. Holiness. Righteousness. Not to be confused with. Self-righteousness. Which is sin. And unholiness. But true biblical holiness and righteousness. And, and I, this is just a good spot. This usually comes at the end of a sermon, but it's just a good spot to say, friend, if you are here week after week after week, and you hear the word preached week after week after week, uh, you're, offend, you're uh, and you're refusing to submit your heart to the rule of Christ. In other words, you hear the gospel, but you Convince yourself you're good enough. You're nice enough. That's really not for me. You're cementing your feet in ungodliness, in grave danger, repeatedly hearing the truth of God spoken to you and refusing to turn from your sin and your self rule That's a loving statement. It sounds really harsh. But when you warn people that you care about, you're pretty strong about it. I had a conversation with, I don't even remember who it was, not too long ago and we were talking about praying for someone. I said, you know, one of the things I pray uh, when I pray for people, and it's just not not necessarily like the right prayer, but one of the things I'll pray is, Lord, would you do whatever you need to do to get their attention? As harsh as it needs to be, but as gentle as you can. That means that life-altering event is God's interaction in your life, God's intervening in your life to lift your chin to see the Lord that you might repent of your sin and turn to him. Now, is every life-altering event discipline? No. We live in a world filled with sin. So there's all kinds of stuff there. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But I do want to say, this is a message that draws a distinction between those who are Christians and those who are not in our culture, in our our, uh, Iowa nice, sometimes our functional theology is that God was just kidding about hell. Friends, God is not playing around with his righteousness. And everyone who does not bow the knee willingly through a humbled heart will do so in the end but on the other side of the judgment conversation. And so it's my plea that you would hear this description today. Apply it to your own heart and take whatever repentance and action steps you need to. And I say that with the greatest amount of love that I can conjure up for you. John, after this section we looked at last week that ends with verse 3, he he draws two contrasts. One is the contrast of righteousness and sin, which we'll look at today. And the second, which we'll look at next week, is, is, uh, Lord willing, is the contrast between love and hate. So we've got these two contrasts as he's sort of fleshing out what are the moral implications of how we live to follow Christ for those who are saved. And all of this that John is putting together is in an effort to instill confidence in the believer. He says that in in verse 28 of chapter 2, and in verses 19 through 24, which we'll look at, Lord willing in two weeks. It's with confidence Christ's appearing, which is which is we've looked at previously. He has appeared. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Christ's future appearing, which is what he has used to sort of focus our mind's eye on how we make decisions in this world, right? Looking at the hope that is to come, we make decisions today. But today, he looks back to Christ's first appearing, right? Christ's past appearing or his his incarnation when Jesus became a baby, came down from heaven to earth, which John reminds us of here, God has dealt the death blow to sin. So open your Bibles, if you will, 1 John 3, 4 through 10. We'll look at it. I'll have it on the screen, but uh, open a physical Bible, or your Bible app. It's good to see God's word in its context always, always. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Righteousness is a particularly unique word that refers to God and in a shared but limited way to his children. I want to be clear righteousness does not equal nice, it means doing everything perfectly rightly according to God's standard not our standard. And so John is saying, and our main idea for this morning is that no one who is born of God can willfully keep on sinning. No one who is born of God can willfully keep on sinning because God's power and love for righteousness are at work in him. The main thing we see in verses four through six, the first point is that Jesus came to take away sins. Jesus came to take away sins and he communicates sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The wording uh, emphasizes this ongoing practice of sin, which is the idea of willful, habitual decision-making action, right? Now let's be clear, willful decision-making, habitual decision-making does not always have to come out for others to see. Willful focusing or fixing of the mind can happen in a world that only you and the Lord know about. That's why I opened with this story about constantly mowing over the shoots in the yard. We can do that constantly. We become a pros at learning how to hide our sin, learning how to cover over our sin. And because we are a church that cares for people, and genuinely wants to come alongside of people. Often, one of the things that we do is we empathize in ways that maybe the Lord doesn't want us to empathize. It's not always the right response to come, come, come alongside of a, another believer and say, Oh, I know that's really hard. I'll pray for you. Sometimes the challenge needs to be that is hard. And I will pray for you, but let's get to work. How can I help you? Let's mortify the flesh. Let's be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He's referring to this, not to the occasional acts, but to a lifestyle. And and this is hard because some of you have very, I'm using the word weak, not in a derogatory way but weak consciences. In other words, you desire so much to bring glory to the Lord. You are so thankful for your salvation that you want to be perfect. You know it won't happen until the day that the Lord takes us home, till Jesus comes to take us back, but you want it so badly. You yearn for the Lord and you yearn for righteousness and and, and sometimes any challenge to a sin in your life, even self-confrontation of sorts in your own mind, and you're tempted to be crushed. Well, that's not God's desire for you because then you're ultimately trusting in how well you do. Performance-based living. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. you got you to put that down. When you sin, acknowledge it, confess it, and trust in the Lord's forgiveness and his cleansing work on the cross and then move forward with rightful planning and decision to move away from that sin. By God's help. The other challenge is, some of you have nearly seared consciences when it comes to certain kinds of living. I don't have any in mind in case you're wondering what the list is going to be. We have ways that we've sinned that we've become okay with. We've, We've presumptuously lived in ways that un... Ah, see, I want to be super nice right now. I was going to say unknowingly or unintentionally, but that would be going a step too far in my desire to be nice about this. We continually live in ways and make decisions that take advantage of the kindness of God. And yes... There is grace upon grace for those who sin. Every one of us in this room. Every one of us in this room who would turn to the Lord. But Paul asked the obvious question. It was a rhetorical question, really, in Romans. Well, should we sin then so that more grace might abound? He's like, of course not. What a ridiculous question. That's like in Matt's parentheses. That's what he's getting at. When Jesus came, before He dies on the cross, he, he communicates that He came not to lessen the power of the law, but to drive it home. In other words, we often think of, of sin merely as outward action, but Jesus drives it straight to the heart. Jesus drives it straight to the heart. No, no, no. Now it's it's no longer a vice that is set in God's sights for the the, the believer, or something we run to when we're trying to run away from something or or cover something up. It's what the vice or the habit or the life pattern is being used to protect or run away from in our life. And so when Jesus dies, or I'm sorry, in Jesus' early ministry, he speaks of anger. He speaks of lust. He speaks of divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving our enemies, practicing righteousness, righteous deeds. Uh, in order to be seen by others. And in Matthew 5, 24, just one example, I'm just going to touch on it and then I have to move off of it. But he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders is is liable to judgment. But I say to you, in other words, here's the law. Thou shalt not commit murder. But, contrast, I, filling out the law, which he just said that he'd come to do, fulfill it. But I, say to you that everyone is angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Whoa! Anger, murder, go at the same issue. That's intense. That's because we can't meet it. But not does only Jesus drive it deeper to our hearts. He fulfills it perfectly. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering, ooh, now just, this might turn into a few sermons. If you're offering, just please, please listen to this phrase. If you're offering your gift at the altar, uh, you might say it like this. When you're going to church, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift. First, go, be reconciled. Then come after your, offer your gift. Jesus came to take away sin. He came to take away the power of sin over, it, over us. He dealt with the penalty of sin that every one of us deserve. And he dealt with the presence of sin or the abiding presence of sin, or you might say our chains to the devil when he died on the cross and rose again through his perfect life, sacrificial death as the only acceptable atonement for sin. He took away sin. He took away lawlessness for those who are in him. First John three, six. Now, no one, no one who abides in him. It's called the doctrine of our union with Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Brothers and sisters, if you keep excusing your sin as something that that you're not able to overcome. I hear this all the time. I say it. Far too often. So I'm there with you. I'm in the side by side with you, learning how to appropriate this truth in my life. But if you say, I'm never going to overcome it, you're making God a liar because He says you can. You are you and I are able to overcome any and every sin with the truth of God's word, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and here active here weekly daily open up open honest fellowship with the body of Christ. If you say with those three aspects I can't overcome it you are lying or you are calling God a liar. Remember chapter one, if we say we have fellowship with God translation, I'm a Christian and we walk in darkness, we lie. So I'm not making that up. We lie and we don't practice the truth. We can know the truth, but we're not putting it into practice. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not making that part up either. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that's why no one who's born of God can willfully keep on sinning because God's power and love for righteousness are at work within him. God creates you. He gives you a new love for him and a new love for the things he loves. You say, well, I'm afraid of walking in obedience in this area of my life. Well, God did not call us to live a life without fear. Uh, Let me rephrase. God did not call us to be controlled by fear in our lives, but very often to learn progressively how to walk through fearful situations, trusting in him, his sovereignty, the power of God, the power of his word, the promises that he has given us, and the helpful presence of the body of Christ. Well, how? Well, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Point two, verses seven and eight tell us this. He says, little children, again, remember. Remember this language he's using. Don't be deceived, I'm paraphrasing. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christian here, the reason Jesus came was not to... Merely set the devil aside and hope that he can't get to you. Jesus disarmed Satan of his power and he gives it to you and me. But it doesn't matter what kind of car I drive or how many horses are underneath the engine. If I don't put it into gear, start the car, put it into gear, take my foot off the brake and put my foot on the gas, I cannot appropriate the power of that engine. Brothers and sisters, we must turn on the car by abiding in Christ, put it into gear with intentional effort of where we're going in our walk with Jesus and push the gas. Because one day Jesus is coming back. One day Jesus is coming back for you and for me. One day he is taking us home And we are to be getting ready for that day, every day of our life. So let's not sit back and go, oh, it's hard. Yep. It's hard. A slave is no greater than his master. And if Jesus suffered, why on earth would we think that we would not suffer? My life is hard. God must not love me. No, there's absolutely nothing biblical about that. There are those who spin that lie. And they'll have to deal with the Lord for it one day. I also would just want to say that God, uh, John is not dealing with individual snapshots of your life because we have an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy, he will come and say, hey, you remember that snapshot? You remember that moment? You remember that little brief season? Uh, one of the things that's pretty cool about some of our newer phones is you've got these live photographs, right? So what they do is, because they know people blink, and they know it just is terrible for parents to try to get a family photo and all this kind of stuff, it records like a two or three second or a one and a half second snapshot uh, or video, and then it ends at the at the photograph, right? I don't know if it like, senses when your finger's about to push the button it knows oh start recording and then you hit the button and it goes okay now stop recording but you can actually kind of like zoom into that or zoom in but you get to the right part on your phone and you can actually go like oh they blinked let me go back a tenth of a second oh no blinking there and you can save that as the snapshot well satan will do that too i mean i say God is not only concerned about the snapshot instance in our life. He's concerned with it, but that's not what he's using to determine whether or not we're evidencing fruit as his children. He's saying, let's look at the movie strip of your life. All of these snapshots together. Look at the last six months, one year, three years. You say, well, I just became a Christian five years ago. Great, look at the last five years. Are you seeing progressive growth in your life as a child of God? Or did you become a Christian Or did you think you became a Christian but have seen no real change in your desires? If you're hearing me today and your main aim in your mind and in your heart is to defend yourself, I would ask you to seriously ask the Lord to examine your heart. If you're hearing, oh, I'm so worn out because I just can't keep doing it right and he keeps telling me I need to be better, be better, be better. Number one, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, be encouraged because your assurance is there. Be secure and keep striving. If you're hearing, I know I'm a Christian and I've tried so hard and I cannot overcome this thing. I will tell you the story is not over. The victory has been won, but you are still in the midst of it. And looking at the overall snapshot, I'm sorry, overall videography of your life. God is not through with you. God has not finished. And if you're feeling that conviction, confess it, acknowledge it, ask for the Lord's help and bring people in. Bring people in. Some of you are okay to say, you know what? I come to church each week. I don't need to get connected in deeper community. I would say that Hebrews tells us the regular weekly gathering of the believers is the thing that we must do. Now, it's a very careful line between there and getting legalistic. Legalism is not holding out the truth that God calls us to and saying, church, we need to go after this. That's not legalism. It's called exhortation. If God says it, it's our job to point it out for all of us. It's your job to point it out to me. So for some of you, Sunday church, Sunday worship. It's just another thing that goes in the schedule with everything else you have going. And sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. I'm not saying you can't go on vacation. I know sometimes work pulls us away. That's where we're not getting legalistic. But generally speaking, the intention of every family ought to be in worship every Sunday. I love you, church family. God designed this for us. God designed this for us. So go on vacation when you need to go on vacation. Work calls sometimes. I, I get it. Sickness, of course. Parents and grandparents, teach your children to prioritize the worship of God's people. Last two verses, Jesus came to distinguish the children of God. Had a conversation with with Dan Bathurst. I don't know where you're sitting, Dan. I saw him earlier today too, but Dan Bathurst and I were talking briefly after the service last week and he gave me a great little illustration. He said, you know, because last week sort of, tiptoed on this just a little bit, and I told him, I said, I'm going to use that next week. So I paid him $10, and I get to use it. (laughs) He's going to come collecting after the service. (laughs) You know how you tell if a walnut is good or bad? Drop it in water. There was an old uh, game show, or not game show, but kind of an evening show uh, game they used to play called Will It Float? Right, And so they'd throw in something that would look like it wasn't going to float, and because of the composition of certain materials in our world, it's like, whoa, that floats? That's incredible, right? I remember doing this on a men's retreat uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and you can have all kinds of fun with it, right? The obvious things aren't going to float. The obvious obvious things are going to float. But then there's a few things in there that just sort of surprise you. Well, if you take a good walnut and a bad walnut, because of the shell on the outside, you can't tell if it's good or bad. And so you drop them in water and the one that is good sinks because it's it's full of what is healthy and full of a good healthy nut. The one that has no healthy nut or has been eaten up inside is going to float because there's nothing in it. And the casing is just going to float. You know what John's asking? Do you float? Are you not filled with the strength and the weight of the power of God through the Holy Spirit, where, where when dropped in the, the, the water of temptation, the water of struggle, the water of desire, you sink because the power, and I mean sink in a good way. that was just kind of like a reverse analogy, but you sink because the Spirit of God is at within you, the weight, if you will, of strength and ability and power and wisdom, and knowledge, and truth, and experience, and community, and fellowship. And I could go on just listing attributes of what those who are in Christ experience and have at their disposal every moment of every day. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. If that's what you hear, you're not hearing the message today. Please don't go home discouraged. The devil wants you to go home discouraged. I want you to go home equipped knowledgeable empowered and motivated because that's what john wants that's the reason he's writing to give you hope to bolster your confidence second peter 1 3 through 11 his divine power has granted to us all things that does not say some things his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Friends, that's just not knowledge about. That is experiential knowledge. By which he has granted to us very great and very precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Don't be deceived, friends. We sin because there is something we desire. No, I can't help it. I hate what this does to me. Well, you weigh on a scale the negative effects of whatever you're choosing with the positive effects of what you think it gets you. And you might not like the vice. You may not like the behavior. But do not be confused Or deceived to think that you don't actually like what you think it brings you, even though confused. So, for this reason, make every effort. He doesn't say make every effort, make some effort. Nope. Every effort. Get after it. Not for salvation, because of salvation not for God's approval, but because of God's approval. Supplement. That means add to your faith. Virtue. Add to virtue, knowledge, add to knowledge, self-control and self-control, add steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our experiential knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's because you are not adding these things together and you are not actively pursuing With all of the effort God gave you, righteousness in Christ. I'm not making it up and I'm not just trying to be hard. This is a hard sermon to preach. Why? Because I got plenty of my own issues. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to what? Confirm your calling and election. In other words, work at it with all your might to suss out whether or not you're a believer. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That doesn't mean you'll never mess up, but you are secure in Christ and you will grow in him. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus christ brothers and sisters when 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 the christian has a a temporal view of living when a temporal view of eternal living then your view of sin i'm just going to read this statement because i'm not saying it right because i want to finish when christians have a right view of temporal living for eternity then your view of sin and your need to purify yourself is at the front and center of your mind and heart. Back in 1.8, John forcefully labels those who say they have no sin as self-deceived and without the truth of God in them. You say, Oh, my sin's good enough. I mean, it's not so much sin that I don't have to worry about it. Well, he says you're self-deceived. And you don't have God in you. Verse 10 of chapter 1, if we claim to have committed sin, or if the claim to have not committed sin is tantamount to calling God a liar, which I've already said a few times. And then in two verse one, John clearly implies that Christians will sin, but he writes to help them avoid it. He writes to help them avoid. it. So how do we understand how this all fits together in, in three nine, where he says one who is born of God does not do sin. That's the literal translation. One who is born of God does not do. It's in an active present ongoing tense. That means one who Uh, is of God, who is born of God, who has God's seed in him, does not keep doing sin or is not able to continue sinning. He's addressing persistent, habitual truth, excuse me, sin, that is contrary to the truth of how God calls us to live. He is lifting their eyes one of the things that i'll do with my kids sometimes is when they're struggling or when they're discouraged or when they're convicted over their own sin or when they're being stubborn and i need their eyes i would just put two fingers underneath their chin which now they kind of know so they kind of like you know turn me away and kick and get away get away i know what you're gonna do two fingers under their chin and i lift and i say i want your eyes I, I want their heart. John is he's putting a couple fingers or a few fingers beneath our chin and he's saying, look up. Look to Jesus. Don't be discouraged, but keep at it. Keep after it. John Calvin said in closing, our current condition is very short of the glow of God's children. Death is always before our eyes. We are also subject to a thousand miseries and the soul exposed to innumerable evils. The more necessary it is then that all our thoughts should be withdrawn from the present view of things, lest the miseries by which we are on every side surrounded and almost overwhelmed should shake our faith. That felicity which is yet lies hid. For the apostles meaning is this speaking of this passage that we act very foolishly when we estimate that God has bestowed on us according to the present state of things. But that we ought to with undoubting faith hold to that which does not yet appear. That means two things. One God's glorious appearing is future tense for those of us who live here in time. Right? And two, you have a future ahead of you. But we dare not, presumptuously, think we can live with this sin as long as we like because one day we'll deal with it. I used to say that when I was a teenager. God one day I'll get serious with you. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I do not know why he did not open up the ground like he did in the Old Testament and suck me down right then and there. That's what I deserved. Arrogant. Arrogant to think that I had tomorrow. But I do know why. Because he's merciful. Gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We don't attain sinless perfection, righteousness in this life. But the way we live ought to mark us off as those who are going after it with all we've got by his power, depending on his strength and clinging to his promise. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday to remember that which we would so easily forget. So if you believe, if you, after a message like today, have confidence that Jesus is your savior, come, eat, eat, Drink. be reminded of his bodily sacrifice, the blood that he poured out for the forgiveness of sins. If you're convicted and you you don't feel like you can come and eat and drink, remember, you can because he came. And so you can. But confess. Acknowledge your sin. If you think, I don't know if I am a Christian. Well, Come talk to me. All right, sir, I, I, come talk to me. Or, even better, pray in your seat and ask the Lord to make you sure or make you understand if you're his child. Repent. Turn away from yourself and turn to him and you will be forgiven. But at no mere word, no mere prayer, no mere set of rituals will cleanse you from your sin. Only genuine faith in Christ and his work on the cross will do that.